The scripture reading today is from Matthew 9, verses 1 through 8. Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. Some men brought to him a paralytic lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, then he said to the paralytic, Get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God, who had given such authority to men. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. you pray with me once again? Father, our prayer this morning is, is simple. We pray that as we meditate and ponder your word, that you would equip us for life and for ministry in your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, this week, I read about a very interesting experiment done by the, the Dove Company. You know, the makers of soap and hand creams. Uh, it was a, a, a great study in kind of human psychology. What they did is they, they brought together a, a large group of people and divided them up into pairs and told the, the group of people, which was now divided up into pairs, get to know each other, uh, become friendly with one another. Up to this point, they were complete strangers. And then one by one, they went to the pairs and they picked one person, brought them into a room and sat them down. On the other side of the room, with his back turned to them, was a a man. He never turned around, never looked at them, just began asking questions about their physical appearance. The man was actually a a 26-year veteran of the L.A. police force. He was a forensic sketcher. And he began asking questions of the individual about their own appearance. And as he was asking questions, he was drawing the whole time. When he had finished asking questions, he said, thank you. And the person got up and left, and he never turned around and looked at him. Then they brought the second person in, who had become friendly with that first person, and sat them down. Again, the man never turned around, just began asking questions, but not about that person's appearance. He began asking questions about the first person's appearance the person they had just met. After a while, the the sketch artist had completed his second drawing of the same person and said, thank you very much, and the person left the room. Then they brought the first person back in and showed them both drawings. The differences were amazing. The second drawing was always kinder looking, always happier looking, always more pleasant, and shockingly, more accurate. You'd think that we'd get to know the person that we look in the mirror well, don't we? 
But that experiment just reminded me that sometimes to get a true picture of who we are, of our ourself, we need an outside perspective. Sometimes others can give us a better assessment of us than we can. And this week as I was looking and studying Matthew chapter 9, I was reminded that no one gives us a better assessment of us than Jesus. You know, when I first started working on the sermon, first started thinking about this text, my initial plan was to look at Jesus from the perspective of the different actors, the different characters in this narrative. You can walk through and say, what did the man see, the the man who needed healing, what did he see in Jesus, and what did his friends see? Well, they obviously saw Jesus, the healer. And then you could turn the story a little bit and ask, well, what about the scribes and the teachers of the law? What did they see? Well, again, that's easy. They saw Jesus, the heretic. And you could turn it once more and say, well, what did the crowds who were, who were watching this amazing miracle unfold, what did they see? And they saw Jesus, the enigma. Uh, Jesus, the man who had authority like no man they had ever seen before. I got a lot of enrichment and enjoyment out of looking at it that way. But about midway through the week, I changed my mind. And I said, you know what? Rather than look at Jesus through different perspectives, maybe we should look at the different characters in the story through Jesus' perspective. What did he see when he saw the different actors in the story? I mean, after all, he does give us the truest perspective, doesn't he? So that's what we're going to do this morning. What did Jesus see when he saw the different people at play, in action in this narrative? As we do this, I want us to keep asking ourselves, does my vision match Jesus's? Do I see others and and do I see myself as Jesus sees me? Uh, The story, I think, is one that we're familiar with. It appears here in Matthew chapter 9. It's actually a truncated version, an abbreviated version of the healing that you read about in Mark chapter 2 and also Luke chapter 5. Here in this story, we're told that Jesus has has gotten in a boat, and he's crossed over and he's come to his own town. And then in a very kind of clipped fashion, Matthew says, and some men brought to Jesus a man, a paralytic, lying on a mat. Well, what does Jesus see when he sees these men And this expression of bringing the man on the mat. What does he see when he sees them? Well, Matthew tells us. He saw their faith. Now, you you could read that to mean Jesus, as the divine Son of Man, looked into their hearts and saw the belief and the confidence and the hope that was in their hearts. That's a possible reading of it, though I think it's a forced and unnecessary reading of the passage. I think what Matthew is alluding to here is he saw their faith in action. They believed and that belief moved them to do something. To do something that required effort. To do something that required work. 
they picked up their friend who was on a mat and carried him. I think it's just pointing to the fact that faith, that is genuine faith, ought to be seen. It ought to be evident. It ought to be visible and, and lived out. These men's faith was faith in action, faith that moved. It was faith that persevered. If you fill in this account with the accounts that come from Mark and Luke, you understand that when they approached the house, it was packed. Couldn't get anywhere near Jesus. Couldn't even get in the door. That was an obstacle to their faith. But they persevered through it. Their faith kept believing, kept moving towards Jesus. It actually becomes quite an audacious kind of faith, doesn't it? I mean, they go up and they start dismantling a roof. And they lower their friend through the roof, interrupting Jesus in the conversations and his teaching. It's a bold faith. It's what one author that we've, I've been reading recently, that the staff has been reading together actually, Daniel Taylor calls an engaged kind of faith. I, I love how he describes this kind of faith in action, this faith lived out. He says engaged faith is assent or acceptance that flows out of the mind into the spirit and body. It passes through and helps shape your will and desire and decision making. It flows into the heart and into the vocal cords and out to the feet and fingertips and from there into the physical and spiritual space in which we live. It shapes who you are and how you choose in the contours of each day, and therefore becomes a force in the life of everyone you meet and every activity you engage in. The kind of faith he's describing is a, is a visible kind of faith. It's a faith that, well, can be seen. When you think about this story and you ask, you know, did Jesus see complete knowledge and full understanding of who he was? Probably not. I seriously doubt that these men who brought their friend understood fully who Jesus was. Understood that he was the promised Messiah. Understood his deity and how he was God in flesh. I doubt they understood or even knew that he would die and rise again for sins. They didn't know all of that. But they acted on what they did know. And to me, that, that's a great encouragement. Because it reminds me that I don't have to have all the dots connected and all the mysteries figured out for my faith to be real. Even with those holes in my understanding, I can still step out in faith and move towards Jesus. Step out in faith in an engaged faith, and live. As I read that passage, this passage, the question began to, well, quite honestly, bug me. Does Jesus see my faith? I have a, a more robust knowledge, we all do, than these men did. We know the story. We're given not just the details of the story, but we're given divinely inspired interpretations of these stories. We have a more robust knowledge. But is our faith as lived out as theirs? 
Is it a faith that moves to action? For the past few months, I've been coaching diving, so you're going to have to allow me one diving illustration. And just be thankful it's not a baseball illustration, right? Uh, so I, I can't tell you over the course of the last couple of months how many conversations I've had with my divers where I've explained the mechanics of a certain dive and said, this is how you do it. Uh, these are the laws of physics that apply. Uh, it's going to work. You have enough height. You have enough rotation. You can do this dive. And they look at me and they're like, all right. I know, I got it. Then they go up to the board and they balk. Uh, They start and they stop and they look at me with questioning eyes. Really? Uh, I can do this? Yep, you got it. Okay, I got it. And they balk again. And, And then they look at me and they're like, I can't. Well, they can. And in one sense, they know they can. They believe it. They believe the laws of physics apply to them. But that belief isn't being moved to action. And I thought, how many times is my faith like that? You sit down with me and you ask me, will God care for you? Does he know all your needs and is he committed to meeting your needs? And I would say yes every time. But I still worry. And I still run around like a chicken with my head cut off, acting as though it all depended on me sometimes. You could sit and ask me, is God's law good? Is His plan for your life good? And I would say, yes, His law is life-giving. It's sweeter than honey. It's the perfect path to life. And yet, I step out and choose my own way so often. How often is our faith a a hidden faith? A faith that's just locked up in our heads. Jesus looked at these men and he saw their faith. He saw the evidence, the expression of it. And I pray that he sees our faith. Not just locked up in our heads, but lived out. You can now turn the story. And ask, what did Jesus see when he saw the man on the mat? Uh, The paralytic man. Well, he saw a man who needed a a deep healing. He saw a whole man. He saw the man needed physical healing. Uh, No great insight was needed there. Everyone in the town knew that this man needed a physical healing. But he saw beyond that. And he saw the spiritual need too. He saw the root. He saw how the spiritual need and the physical need were connected. How they were intertwined. How this man was an integrated whole. Body, soul. And he addressed both. In this passage, Jesus seems to connect. Seems to connect the man's condition with sin. Not just sin in the the universal cosmic sense that we live in a fallen world, but with a personal sin issue. Now last week, Bob spoke on the the healing of the woman who who was stooped over. And that passage seems to indicate that there was a, a spiritual force, a demonic presence that was oppressing her. That was causing that physical ailment. And this passage seems to be 
personal sin. We need to remind ourselves, I I think we did last week, that that's not always the case, right? The story of the blind man that was healed in Luke chapter 9, the disciples asked Jesus, this man that was born blind, who sinned? Was it the man or his parents that he would be born blind? And Jesus said, "It's, it's neither. This is so that God would be glorified. So it's not always the case. But in this passage and in others, it seems to indicate that sometimes it is the case. You get another healing story in John chapter 5. Jesus encounters another paralytic man, this man lying beside the pool of Bethesda, and he heals that man. Later in the day, Jesus finds him again and says, see, "See, you're healed. Now go and, and stop sinning. Sin no more, lest something worse happen to you. Again there, there seems to be a connection in that person's life between sin and their condition. That seems to be the case here too. Jesus sees the physical need and sees the connection between the man's spiritual need and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Let's deal with the root issue here. Your sin, I declare it forgiven i wonder and this is one of those stories where i want more details i wonder what the man thought then was there a sense of relief was there a sense of the burden being lifted was there a sense that finally someone knows me and knows that that's my real issue or if it was me it would probably be more like well that's not why i came That's not why I went through the effort of having my friends bring me here. I wonder, but we're not told. We are told that the miracle doesn't stop there, though. Jesus addresses the spiritual needs. Son, your sins are forgiven. And a few moments later, take up your mat and walk. So my question for us, based on This understanding of what Jesus saw in the man is, do we see as Jesus saw? Do we see the whole? Do we see people in in the fullness of their need as integrated soul and body? Or do we become, like I fear I am often, myopic? Focusing on just one aspect of human need. It's a real need, But it's not the only need. Now for me, uh, I'll confess that my default is to focus on the spiritual need. And the person as a spiritual person. And some of you are probably applauding that. Don't. (laughs) Remember the parable of the sheep and the goats. Jesus didn't say, I was hungry and I was thirsty And you spoke words of comfort and righteousness to me. He doesn't say, I I was naked and I was in prison and you prayed for me. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty, you gave me a cup to drink. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you came to me and you sat with me. You visited me. Sometimes I think I'm, I fear... I'm focused on the spiritual side of it simply because it's easier. 
It's easier to say, I'll pray for you. Easier to say, well, let's talk about the spiritual problem. Easier than saying, let's go meet this need. Let's figure this out together. I know that because it's kind of what I do in, in the house. You know, Lynn says after dinner, okay, you can either help with the dishes or you can help with homework. And I think, well, what's the homework? Is it reading a book on the couch? I'll do that. That's my default. Some here might be focused more on the, the physical to the exclusion of the spiritual. And again, we might want to applaud that. Don't. Anything that excludes the whole person or one side of the need is incomplete. And maybe, maybe we tend to focus on just the physical because it's easier to call for reform than repentance. Easier to provide food than to confront sin. Jesus didn't neglect both sides, both aspects of the man's need. He shows himself to be the the true healer, healing soul and bringing reconciliation between God and this needy man and healing body as well. If he had only healed the body, it would have been an incomplete healing. And if he had only healed the spirit, the soul, it would have been an incomplete healing. Jesus offers deep, complete healing. Healing of our spirits, of our souls, healing of our complete person. We wait for that. We understand that the one who's begun a good work in us, it's not done yet. Sin is still there. It's being rooted out. Physical ailments are still there. We await the glorious resurrection and new life in the new heavens and the new earth where the whole of humanity, the whole of our humanity is healed. Jesus is the true healer and he saw in this man a man who needed that deep, true healing. What did Jesus see when he saw the scribes? He saw the evil in their hearts. Uh, The crowds saw the religious elite, the holier-than-thous, but not Jesus. He saw religious arrogance, a, a refusal to allow your presuppositions, your theological conclusions to be challenged. They believed, rightly, that sin is against God and so only God can forgive. And they thought to themselves, this man certainly isn't God. So for him to claim to forgive sins is blasphemy. They couldn't even consider that one of their premises was flawed. That maybe this man who is doing the things that God does could be God among us. God in the flesh. Their arrogance prevented it. The evil in their hearts clouded their eyes. What would have happened if the scribes had been humble enough to just consider for a moment that their theological conclusions were wrong? And I wonder, in my own life, has my religious knowledge 
led to arrogance. It led to a, a hardness where my ideas, my conclusions can't even be challenged. The more I read and the more I study, the, the more that kind of fear grows that I'm just becoming arrogant. And my wife would confirm that. I think sometimes we confirm or, or we, we feel that, that being humble and allowing our, our conclusions to be challenged is a sign that we don't really believe truth exists. And it's not. It's just a recognition that only God has a corner on truth and I'm not God. So when I look at Jesus and I see how Jesus sees the scribes, I'm challenged. Not to let my knowledge become arrogance and hardness of heart. But there's one other group in the story. Of the crowds. How did Jesus, what did Jesus see when he looked and he saw the crowds? Well, he saw worshipers. Or at least potential worshipers. You know, I think it's interesting in this story. That the way it's told, it makes it seem as though the physical healing is more for the sake of the crowds than for the man lying on the mat. He's not, Jesus doesn't say, so that you'll have fullness of life and you'll be able to walk again, get up and walk. He says, so you all will know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Take up your mat and walk. Jesus shows them who he is, and and in so doing, he draws them in. The the NIV says that they were filled with awe. I I don't think that quite gets at it. The ESV says they were afraid. Uh, The word there is actually the word phobia. Yeah, phobia, like, you know, arachnophobia, the fear of spiders. It's fear, it's reverence and awe that is at such a high level. It involves a measure of, of fear. So they were afraid and they glorified God. I like the way Luke puts it. They were astonished with a big astonishment and they glorified God. They glorified God because he had given such authority to men. And they saw Jesus and they saw in him the authority. The authority over disease, over infirmity. He could heal. He could do what, to this point, only God could do. But even beyond that, he had the authority to forgive sins. And I think that, even more than the physical healing... The physical healing was just a sign that he could forgive sins. But it's this authority to forgive sins that causes them to fear and to glorify God. Why would someone fear the one who can forgive sins? You saw that in the Old Testament passage, the Old Testament reading as well. Psalm 130. With you there is forgiveness of sins, therefore you are feared. What's the connection? I think it's understanding that forgiveness is from beginning to end utterly an act of grace. 
We have no claim upon that grace. We have no claim upon that mercy. We can't say, I deserve it, I've merited it. We know we're simply at the mercy of the one who can forgive. We've offended deeply. And we're under we're under mercy. And that ought to ought to raise a little bit of fear in us. That forgiveness isn't something we can demand. It's not something we're owed. It's just something we can plead for. Does God's mercy lead me to fear Him? Does Christ's authority lead me to fear and reverence and worship Him? I hope so. I think this is the kind of robust understanding of grace that prevents us from presuming upon grace, prevents us from taking grace lightly, prevents us from using grace as a cover for all the sins that we want to commit. Never, never, if we understand grace this way and we're moved to fear, would we do that? So Jesus saw the crowds and he saw the scores, these scores of, of potential worshipers and he gave them a glimpse of his true authority and they were brought in. Jesus looked at the crowds and he saw potential worshipers. He looked at the scribes and he saw the evil, the arrogance in their hearts. He looked at the man and he saw a man needing deep healing And at those friends that brought him, he saw their faith. So what would Jesus see in me? And what would he see in you? Maybe arrogance. I pray not. Hopefully faith. Certainly a people who need a deep healing. People who need to hear Your sins are forgiven. All the offenses that you've committed are covered over. No doubt he'd see that. And no doubt he offers it too. He sees our need for a deep healing. And he offers it to us. He says your sins are forgiven. Take that offer. You will be healed Take me up on that. I pray that we do have the faith to accept that wonderful offer of a deep healing. And that as we celebrate that grace in our lives, we have the love to extend that deep healing to others. Would you pray with me? Father, we are so grateful Grateful that you haven't left us alone to wallow in our need, but have shown the deepest of commitments to meet our need. So deep was that commitment you would send your son to walk, to walk in the sandals of a man and feel the physical needs, to empathize with us in our weakness, and to show the depth of your commitment to meet our needs, all of them. That commitment was so deep it took him to a cross where he would die as the atoning sacrifice for our sin. 
where He would open the gate to reconciliation and full redemption to us. We pray that as Your Spirit moves among us, You would be drawing us deeper into an appreciation of that. That maybe today for the first time, someone would take You up on that offer of of deep, deep healing and would celebrate with the saints what it means to be the redeemed children of God. We thank You in Jesus' precious name. Amen.